Dan Perkins Media presents a unique and exciting program. Truth Starts Now, a conversation with Dan Perkins. The left has taken away your rights to freedom of speech. Truth Starts Now is a platform for you to regain your voice. America and Americans will be better off if we can have civil and respectful conversations about the day's important issues. Now, here's your host, Dan Perkins. Hello, this is Dan Perkins, your host of The Truth Starts Now. We're doing a special report with one of the candidates for the Republican nomination for president. No, it's not Donald Trump. It's a young man by the name of Sam Rosen who's running for the first time. So here's the interview with Sam Rosen. Welcome back to The Truth Starts Now, and we have a late entry in the Republican nomination for president, Sam Ronan, who... um, we found out that uh, he and my wife are from the same town of Lancaster, Ohio, and uh, we talked about the church that we were married at. But Sam, uh, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Dan. It's always a pleasure. Yes, well, I appreciate that. Your website has four areas of your broad platform, and uh, we're going to do two segments, and I thought we'd do the first segment we would do on two of them, and then in the second segment, we'll do two more. and. We'll see where we go. The area that is of great interest to me is your, your, in your platform, you talk about police reform. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm going to tell you what I read and how I interpreted it. Then you can tell me if I got it right or wrong. That would be great to hear, please. <laughs> um, as, I, as I read that particular section, you want to have all police forces at whatever level currently all be assigned to the federal government and come under federal control. Mm. I see how you could come to that conclusion. The main thing I was shooting for, and if I need to work on the phrasing, I will, because uh, you're not the first person to come to that conclusion. I want federal standardization, right? You can have your local police forces, your county sheriff's department, and your state highway patrol. That's fine. Each of these uh, tiers of law enforcement serve their purpose. However, what doesn't exist is anything that resembles uniformity or accountability or structure from one area to the other, right? The, uh, the Ohio State Highway Patrol acts differently than the New Jersey State Highway Patrol, which acts differently than the Texas Highway State Patrol. And then they have different rules that people don't necessarily understand when traveling in between state lines. There's no consistency. And then there's the, the vaunted what is and what is not a lawful order from a law enforcement officer, right? So when you get into all of this, you know, quagmire of gray area in a place where if you make the wrong decision as a citizen or make the wrong decisions as an officer, both can have very serious legal and personal and well, life-threatening consequences, right? If you don't know that you're supposed to stay in the car or if you're supposed to get out of the car in this state or the other state, you could inadvertently trigger some sort of aggressive event or vice versa. If the cops aren't held accountable for being aggressive, then you just uh, sully the, the blue line in the first. So the main takeaway here is the military, whichever branch you're in, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, or even the Coast Guard, if you're an MP or if you're security forces or if you're whatever they choose to call them, you have the same qualifications, the same recommendations, the same standards, 
and you are held accountable to them. If you break the rules, they are similar across all of the branches. There is no deviation. There is, this is how an officer is supposed to act. And that's what we lack, I think, in our police forces. And I think it would go a very, very long way in, shall we say, quelling the ire and mistrust that exists on either side. And it would, I think, improve our law enforcement uh, exponentially by by improving the quality of our law enforcement. But aren't aren't you suggesting that when you when you say that the, there's a federalization of police standards, it's the federal government who's going to decide what those standards are? Sure. And I, I was thinking, for example, about the uh, the riots in 2021, Seattle and Portland and those places. Mm-hmm. where the police were ordered by the mayor to stand down. And in other cities where riots were taking place, uh, the government, the elected government mayor said to the police chief, don't do anything. And yet, how would your your standardization mm-hmm. deal with the issue in a particular city where the the mayor who's the the authority says to the police chief i don't want you to to, to deal with anything with this let, let, just let them burn it down <laughs> if the standards I and mean, that's exactly what the mayor of baltimore said no i i, I remember i um i agree so uh to to clarify again federal standardization is uh, another way of saying federal regulation right these are the minimums that a law enforcement agency, a police department, or what have you, must meet. And one can say that's government oversight or over control or whatever, but it's the same thing with our education system. The states are perfectly in control of their own education budget and what they want in their curriculums. But if they don't adhere to minimum federal standards, they will not get federal funding. And the same would be true for the police forces. Uh, A lot of these um, institutions do rely on federal funding um, or they it gets trickled down from the state which relies on the federal funding either which way federal dollars gets involved and if you want those dollars to remain involved you have to adhere to minimum standards now when I talk about standards I do mean how to conduct the job how to comport yourself what's required to become an officer uh, considering most of the training uh, that is required for an officers is less than that of what a barber or a beautician would have to uh, do undertake in most states. So it, I, I find it very difficult to fathom that you can get six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks of training and become an officer with a gun and an, a decent understanding of the law. Yeah, you have to go to barber school for over a year, two years, three years in many cases before you're even allowed to cut hair. It's that kind of standardization. As far as policy as to when to deploy um, officers and and when the mayor has control, um, that's the difference. I'm not talking about nationalizing the police force, right? Uh, other countries do that. Uh, other countries that are very democratic, other countries succeed in doing that. Other countries, however, are not the size and scale of the United States of America. And they don't have the same problems as the United States of America. So it might work for them. So for my intents and purposes. I don't want to nationalize the police force. I want to standardize it. I want that minimum threshold to be met for training, engagement, and you know, rules of engagement, uh, training, uh, you know, fitness levels, education requirements, and how to engage with the society. And also 
how to prioritize the work, right? For again, I don't like the fact that officers justify their existence by setting up speed traps. That's not a good use of taxpayer dollars. And that just reaffirms uh, their own existence with traffic law and this, that, and the other. If traffic uh, violations were such a detrimental impact on society, we'd all be dead, especially in New England. Uh, we They drive crazy out here, or at least compared to Ohio. So what I'm saying is, if we can focus the standardization, say, on like rape kits, on finding lost and stolen goods, on enforcing, you know, going to actual areas where there is crime and conflict and addressing them, you know, maybe expanding what is and what isn't a criminal issue and is instead a civil issue. It's those kind of things that get standardized as a baseline. It's not the president being able to go to Baltimore and say, hey, no, you need to tell your sheriff's department, your local PD to stand down. That, that's not what that is. That's the purview uh, of, of the, the reserves, right? That the military is at the federal level and the guard is at the state level and law enforcement should be at the local level. So the, um, the standards that you would put in place, many, many communities across the country have civilian review mm. and a, a civilian police oversight group. Would that continue? It would have to continue, for one, because um, the federal government would probably be limited in how much it could enforce it, much like with the education aspects, right? Once once it gets rolling and there's like the, the channels have been firmly established, the citizen oversight might not be as necessary. Um, but I always encourage citizen oversight in anything to do with the government. It's just a matter of when the citizen oversight becomes politicized, right? Can, can we maintain the true integrity of the citizen oversight? Now, as far as I'm aware, they do exist, but not nearly stringently or impactfully enough um, to really hold law enforcement accountable. Law enforcement tends to be an island unto itself. Um, and that's why when we talk about budgets, especially at the local level, it, it tends to go half, 50% of all local budgets tend to go to law enforcement. And then the law enforcement is supposed to deal with uh, standard issues like uh, mental health crises, uh, suicide crises, um, and other things that would not necessarily be the purview of criminal activity, such as, uh, you know, drug dealing, violence, theft, rape, assault, things along those lines, right? And even when we talk about drug use and overdose, many have begun to argue and the society is beginning to shift to seeing that that is more of a humanitarian and healthcare crisis rather than a, a legal one. And so when law enforcement is meant to carry a bunch of hats that it is not necessarily equipped to deal with or to handle because they are a hammer to the nail, it becomes a question of what do we want enforcement to do in our society? If we want them to do everything, then we need to partition them. If we want them to do this one thing, then we need to partition the budget so that the other things can still be resolved. Primarily on the West Coast when we had all the riots and, and uh, but mm -hmm. there was a, a very active movement to defund the police. Mm -hmm. and to replace them with social workers. I couldn't figure out how that would ever work because so, okay. it doesn't seem to me that being involved in social issues and policy is an appropriate role for the police force. Correct. It, it, and that's exactly why the divest and defund movement gained so much steam because a law enforcement officer is supposed to deal with criminal activity, presumably active, uh, active and engaging criminal activity, right? 
we don't need armed officers to deal with traffic, right? We don't need armed officers to deal with a mental health crisis. We don't need officers to deal with the drug overdoses. We don't need officers for those things. We need them to prosecute criminals. We need them to make arrests. We need them to keep our cities safe and our streets safe, right? But the social safety net failings, the the healthcare crisis, the mental health care crisis, the social issues like you just brought up, those are the purview of other organizations, whether that's healthcare, whether that's social work, whether that's crisis response, whatever it is, it doesn't fall under law enforcement. And so we need to start partitioning it. And that, and that's, again, what I'm suggesting. Um, we do need police. There is a role for police in our society. Unfortunately, until we are all prosperous millionaires, we need police, right? But for everything else, we don't. And for everything else, we need the properly trained and the right, you know, organization to handle those problems. I, I think we need more healthcare professionals. We need more EMTs. We need more social workers to deal with those social issues. And um, the other, we've got a little over a minute left in this segment, and we're we're going long, and that's fine. Uh, the issue that I, I want to end this segment with is that the last number I saw, there were forty-eight thousand vacancies for police officers, hmm. and there was a, uh, a town in California that was offering incoming pay for a, 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 a civilian, no experience at all, at 104,000 base pay and 75,000 sign-on bonus. Mm -hmm. And they weren't getting, weren't getting anybody to sign up. Talking $175,000 for an entry-level patrolman. Mm -hmm. You talk about, you wanna set the standards. I would assume that you, you wanna create a salary, a salary range, a salary schedule so that everybody gets treated fairly, but it's hard to do that when the cost of living in California is a lot different than it is in Nebraska. So how do you how do you deal with the ability to recruit people even if you're putting substantial money on the table? So standardization of cost of living and, and all that fun stuff, that, that gets into a whole different side. So we'll set that aside for a second. Um, I'm happy to address it in, in the next segment. What the problem is is citizens and society do have an extremely negative view of law enforcement currently. And it's for any number right. of reasons. Um, and the more left-leaning you get, the more ire there is, the more centrist you get, the more wiggle room there is. And of course, the more right-leaning you are, the more you tend to support uh, authority, authority figures, which is fine. This isn't the issue. But California is extremely liberal. It's extremely left-leaning. So in a society where the average person is not going to trust or respect law enforcement, it doesn't matter how much you pay them. Would you flip burgers for a million dollars? You and I probably would, but there are people who would scoff at that. Would you scrub dirty latrines for a million dollars? I sure as hell would not. That's disgusting. But there are people who would, right? So to, to some people, uh, becoming a law enforcement officer, even for $200,000, almost $200,000 a year is equivalent to me wanting to scrub latrines for the rest of my life. That It's just, there is no gain. There is no benefit. There is no moral um, support to becoming an officer in the eyes of some of these people, despite the uh, income. Which is why, if there was federal standardization, federal regulation of law enforcement at every single level of government, it would instill trust, trust in law enforcement, trust 
back into our society that they are going to do their job by the book always. And if they don't, if they deviate from the book, they will be held accountable and be held responsible. It's why many people still hold the military in such high esteem, despite not liking all of our uh, military conflicts across the globe, right? The global war on terror. Most people were sick and tired of it by the time 2010 rolled around, right? We, after the Twin Towers attack, everybody in, in this country was pro the war. But after we got Saddam, we were like, okay, why are we, what are we still doing there? And then 20 years later, what are we still doing there? But what was never, what never happened in this country was disparaging our military because we understand that our military is professional, that they are held to the highest standards, that they do have exceptional quality in the work that they do, and that those are our sons and our daughters. That has been lost in law enforcement. Law enforcement used to be held to the same prestige and esteem as the military because they were held to the same esteem and quality as the military. And at, over time, that has skewed. Now the military remains here at the peak of quality and training and all this other fun stuff. And law enforcement is just begging people to join and is being lax with discipline and accountability because they can't fill spots. Part of that is the social aspect. And part of it is because the law enforcement in our country is trying to take on too much responsibility that it has no business taking on. So by addressing the standardization issue from the national level down, you will address both the trust, the uh, employment uh, inconsistencies, and as well as regaining that actual credibility that law enforcement needs to have in order to be effective. We're talking with uh, Sam Roman. So when we come back, we'll continue the conversation and we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Truth Starts Now and our guest, Sam Ronan. And we were talking about his four different major platform areas. We we dealt with the police in this the, our first segment. We're going to try and get through all four. So the next one that I want to talk about is taxation. Mm -hmm. I got to believe for the vast majority of Americans, your tax policy of wanting to tax billionaires out of being billionaires, a 93% tax rate over $400,000, be a tough one to sell. So I hear you. Um, and I raise you this. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, general of the U.S. Armed Forces during World War II and subsequent president of the United States, taxed everyone above $400,000 at 94% during his administration. He already did it once in our country. And up until the Reagan administration, literally up until the day Reagan took office, the top percent tax rate, which caps at $400,000, so anything over $400,000, which now with billionaires, you can only imagine the, the sums of money we're talking about. The day Reagan took office, the top percent tax rate above $400,000 was 70%. So in our country's history, it has been predominantly, significantly above 50%, let alone towards the 70 and 90 percentiles. The reason for this is it discourages hoarding of wealth. And that is the exact intent that um, my tax policy would have too, is make your money, be successful, enjoy the free market, do whatever you can to be wealthy and powerful and influential and take care of your market share. However, give back. <laughs> the, the, the responsibility of the corporation is not just to its shareholders, it's to its employees in the community and country that it operates in. 
And so taxing at that high level isn't big brother, the government saying, I want 94% of your profits because that's the negative connotation, how it often gets uh, portrayed. It's more so stop making me tax you at 94% and reinvest in your company, reinvest in your people and reinvest most importantly in your country and your community that allowed you to make those billions of dollars in the first place. It's, it's about ensuring that the, the wealth disparity, that the growth of wealth and revenue and income and so on and so forth follows a simple tract instead of this, this, this skew that we've had ever since um, trickle-down economics has been implemented. And to that end, I'd like to just quickly touch on, we've never once implemented trickle-down economics in this country. Trickle-down economics, by definition, is the more a company makes, the more it reinvests in its people, which has not once happened. The wage disparity um, has only skewed since that was implemented to the point now where there are CEOs making 2,000 times the amount of their lowest paid employee, while uh, real wages have only gone up by like 30% in 50 years. So if trickle-down economics had actually been instituted and implemented or enforced, rather, you would have seen a much greater, or a, I'm sorry, a much more um, reduced skew over the course of time where pro prosperity of the working class would have mirrored the prosperity of the wealthy and capital class. What are you using as the basis of real wages? Are you talking about the minimum wage? You're talking about what? I'm talking about uh, the the various studies and charts that showcase, um, and I do believe it is the average wage um, is what those studies depict. Uh, the average wage over the course of time has only gone up like 5% per year um, with, you know, of course, ebbs and flows to the point where I think from uh, the Reagan administration to the present, the real increase of wages, uh, the, the real spending ability of working class is uh, only improved by like 30 to 70%, depending on the income bracket. Whereas the wealth and spending capability of CEOs and corporations have literally taken a parabolic rise. That's the, mm -hmm. the main difference. If you look at those charts prior to that, it's it's a it's a it's a basically a parallel line. Yeah, the wealthy are going to be wealthy, and I'm not disparaging the wealthy for being wealthy. It's just we had this up until 1978, and then we had this. So, so if if you if you use as the basis for your your tax policy Eisenhower, yes, what can you buy today in the store or online or whatever? That is the same price as it was in 1950 when when he was president. Yeah, there's not a single thing that you can buy at the same price, and that's so. The why would you Why would you use a four hundred thousand dollar base mm -hmm. in the 1950s when you look at all the inflation that we've had in this country mm -hmm. since then, mm -hmm. and try and try and hold us to a standard of of the 1950s when in fact the if you adjust it for inflation, mm -hmm. that four hundred thousand dollars is not four hundred thousand worth of buying power today. No, you're you're absolutely correct, and I want to double check on my website. Okay, no, um, I did not maintain that four hundred thousand. I use that as an example for a discussion, and I do apologize in my taxation policy, and I definitely wanted to make sure that I was <laughs> not misquoting myself. Um, I start the taxation bracket at 100000 I don't believe the working class, which I feel is an income at six figures and below, 
needs to be taxed as per the social contract and the fact that income taxes were only supposed to be a wartime era uh, emergency funding tool mechanism, whatever you want to call it in the first place. And it was always the wealthy landowners and business owners that were paying taxes in this country to begin with. However, comma, you, to your point, the $400,000 mark, that, that is effectively the basic level of middle-class income nowadays. Um, $400,000 now uh, is probably the equivalent of maybe 30 or 40,000 was back then. I could go on Google and do the calculator thing. Um, but the, to your point, why stick to that, what seems to be outdated concept? And, and it goes back to the enforcement of um, redistribution of funds. If the highest earners and the most wealthy businesses in this country hoard wealth, which is what we have seen happening, the top 1% of the top 1% control 90% of all assets in our country. So that's a couple thousand at most individuals that control 90% of the over $20 trillion of GDP. And what percentage, what percentage of that group of people that you talked about, that 1%, what percentage of the total tax revenue to the country do they pay? Uh, they, in, in most cases, pay only a third because the tax burden is actually on the lesser 99%, the lower income of the 99%, that tax burden shift happened again during the Reagan administration, where Social Security was taxed for the first time. And with uh, rising um, income tax wages and taxation on lower incomes, the effective tax rate of the working class, if you will, is 100% of whatever we are charged, right? If we're at the 24% tax rate, we are paying that entire 24%. Whereas the wealthy and the powerful uh, pay effective rates of single digits or less, which means they should be accounting for at least 50% or more, but they end up paying only 33% to our 66%. And this statistic can be easily researched online. It's one of the biggest um, issues that we're dealing with as uh, inflation increases and uh, record profits with record layoffs uh, continue to um, increase as well. People can't afford their cost of living. Uh, the cost of groceries in the past year has tripled. Uh, for a single guy living on his own, my weekly budget for groceries went from $50 to almost $150 in, in just the past year alone. That And I was buying the same exact stuff, which is you know regular meat, chicken, uh, beef, uh, whatever, and cooking it myself. Um, and, and, and that's, that's the kind of disparity that a, mo a lot more people are facing when they, especially when you're talking about children, small children, families, and the elderly, there's another, um, cause for concern with this taxation, right? Um, as people start to retire and aging out of the workforce, they're unable to afford the property that they had already done paid off because now they're on a fixed income. And that fixed income does not meet the current property values and the taxation of those values plus social security gets taxed. So on top of these things, you're, you're artificially suppressing the wages and spending power of the American people by taking money out of their income tax or their income in the first place. And you're depressing their spending ability, which with inflation and the rising cost of living makes it harder for the economy itself to function because when people cannot spend, when they cannot you know, take care of themselves, when 
every ounce of their dollars that they have earned is taken in taxation or spent on just survival, the economy can't grow. And so raising taxes on the higher earners, and especially on the highest earners, it discourages hoarding of wealth. It encourages the increase of reinvestment, the increase of uh, supporting you know, employees, raises, bonuses, what have you, or even expansion of business, either which way. The higher taxes at the higher levels discourages, A, paying yourself $20 billion or $50 million or $100 million in the first place, but it also discourages the hoarding and the holding of that wealth in the first place and, and having it reallocated. That concept is one way in which the government can enforce trickle-down economics, and in my opinion, should. You said a, a few moments ago that the, the 40... The four hundred thousand dollars, yes, was an example. It's not worry, not not necessarily. And if I'm putting words in your mouth, please correct me. But it, what what would be the number when you cross over to the the ninety three percent income? Is, is, is it more than four hundred thousand? So the way I break it up. Um... So our tax bracket, just to be very clear, the United States of America, our tax bracket uh, deviation or de denomination, I, I can't think of the word right now. The way it's broken up in America is 400,000 is the cap for income. And then I believe right now the tax rate is 35%. So if you make $400,000 or $400 million in a year, you're still only paying the 35%, right? That, that is the way our current tax system uh operates the way my policy it goes it starts um at 100,000 so from 99,999 and 99 cents and below you're paying zero income taxes at the federal level and preferably according to my policy that states and local governments wouldn't uh tax incomes as well but that's neither here nor there at the federal level i then go from the bracket of 200,000 300 400 500,000 million, 10 million, 100 million, and then at $1 billion, it gets taxed at 99%, although uh, that's kind of, at that point, I may as well just write a 100. The point isn't that uh, the numbers themselves, right? The, the point is that by taxing higher levels of income exorbitantly, it discourages that level of income in the first place, which is the point. Um, it's not to say that an innovator right? Uh, a creator, uh, someone, an inventor, right? Who created AI. Let's just take AI, for example. Those are incredibly talented, incredibly influential individuals in our society, and they deserve compensation for their efforts, their product, their genius. They truly do. I am in awe of these programmers who create AI. However, that is not justification to just extract wealth <laughs> from society and hold on to it like a dragon on a mountain of gold. The people who facilitated the AI, the people who facilitated the network, the infrastructure, the marketing, this, that, and the other are workers. They are employees. And you utilize the electrical grid, the water grid, the, the, the highway system, and all the things that this country built on U.S. tax dollars. It isn't they did this on their own on because somebody had to make the computer, somebody had to make the keyboard, somebody had to make the stuff that goes in the computer, somebody had to make the operating system for the computer, right? Somebody had to invent the programming language. The point is, 
one individual, never, never once in all of history, to include today, has ever earned a billion dollars or that exorbitant wealth on their own. It has always been a collective effort. Now, whether that's employees, whether that's inheritance, whether it's whatever, there's always that collective. And so taxation is meant to encourage that collective of this is a country, we are a society, we're all Americans, and this is what the tax dollars are supposed to do. Ensure we can all survive together. And businesses, Adam Smith himself, the father of capitalism, that man in the 1700s himself said, the purpose of capitalism, of the capitalist, is to make money, yes, but to then redistribute that money, yes, I don't know if that was the exact phrase, but to, to compensate his employees and give back to their community respectively, because the capitalists cannot do it on their own. So my tax policies, my economic policies, my entire theory behind economy and taxation and money in general is if you're going to make it, share it with the people who made it possible for you to have in the first place. And I raise you one more point and, and then I'll get off my soapbox. During the COVID shutdown, we can agree or disagree whether that was necessary. What it proved, however, was that in two months, 34% of the United States GDP was erased. It was completely dropped. And why was that? It was because the entire workforce was mandated to stay home. So all of these shareholders, all of these investors, all of these job creators did not, in fact, run the economy. They did not, in fact, provide value. They did not, in fact, provide the goods, the resources, and the services that our country requires in order to survive, let alone to thrive. So again, the argument that raising taxes would detrimentally harm the wealthy and the powerful is false. His history proves that wrong. The, the fact that, um, or the, the statement or the theory that um, these capitalists will just benevolently redistribute their money has already been disproven because that's not happening at all. And the idea that trickle-down economics can continue without any sort of enforcement while record inflation, while record price uh, gouging and profit-taking exists is not going to lead to a long-term prosperous society. So this tax bracket is not me taking 99% of every billion dollars that's created. It's me discouraging that billion dollars to being put into your personal bank account in the first place and encouraging you to take that money that otherwise would be taxed and redistribute it to your workforce where it belongs. That contribution of society, that social contract of the worker and the capitalist, we need to start embracing that contract and start really recognizing that it exists and that we both have a role to play. Part of what you were saying reminded me of the quote from Barack Obama mm -hmm. when he was talking to businessmen and they, he said, uh, you didn't build that. Yes. You didn't build that. We, the government and a bunch of other people built it, but you didn't build it. Mm -hmm. And yet I suggest that, that the the gray matter in the person's brain who came up with the idea and brought together the resources to construct his idea, he did build it. Number two, <clears throat> if you redistribute what you're talking about, you are likely that you may put some of those employees above $100,000, mm -hmm. which puts them in a higher tax rate or a tax rate because you don't want to charge them any taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, 
below a hundred thousand. And I, I, on a, ca a campaign stop, I don't know whether you, maybe you have the courage to do this. Maybe you don't. It's okay if you don't, but I, I would love to have you stand up in front of your audience and maybe you have already done it and yeah. say, look, let me tell you, if you make over a hundred thousand dollars on my, under my tax plan, you're going to pay a lot more in taxes. Under a hundred thousand, you're not going to pay any taxes. The audience would probably respond to that. But as you start to go up and you look at the redistribution of wealth that you're talking about, you're going to have a hard time, I think, finding people who want to sign up for that plan. Because are you going to take away what they've already accumulated? Are you going to tax their assets like Elizabeth Warren wants to do is do an asset tax? Are you going to charge that 93% on your assets that you've accumulated? Take it away from people? That's a great question. Um, I, off the top of my head in this taxation thing, I don't think I addressed that. I do believe I did address it in other, in a, in a different policy platform. I'm not here to necessarily Robin Hood, steal from the rich and give to the poor. Um, I am here to ensure that the rich give what the poor are due. And as to your point, um, the working class won't have to pay taxes. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty damn certain that, uh, let's see, the top 10% of earners in America are at 100,000 or more. So 90% of the population out of the 330 million Americans, 300 million Americans, which granted that's not the entire workforce, I guess that's a different statistic, 155 million or so. Still, 100 and what is that, 40 million Americans not having to pay taxes is something that I believe they would very much so get behind. And the idea that once you made a hundred thousand dollars, that hundred and well, that hundredth dollar, right? That hundred thousandth dollar is what is getting taxed, just like our current tax system. You get right. taxed at 12% up until whatever, 15 up until whatever, and at four hundred thousandth dollar is when you get your 35% and from that point forward, right? So that still holds true. And my tax bracket does shift um, at that hundred thousandth dollar, you're only paying 10% taxes. That's less taxes than people are currently paying. And if you're making a hundred thousand dollars, doesn't matter where you are in this country, you can at least afford a standard cost of living. And therefore the fear of paying taxes is not that high in the first place. Because again, that's already the top 10% of earners. Now, that being said, with this redistribution of wealth, this the the making sure that there isn't the major wealth gap or the hoarding of wealth, which is my main concern. Yes, there would be a lot more people with $100,000 or more in the world, uh, in our country, I'm sorry. And to that end, if you're paying zero taxes on the first $100,000, and then you're only paying taxes on that next $100,000 and beyond, you can already afford your cost of living. You can already afford your necessities. You can even afford probably a bit of luxury at that point, right? $100,000, like a pure straight $100,000. Let me, let me quickly do the math here. I think that is the equivalent of 160,000. Um, but let me quickly do that math. I'm sorry. Uh, so a $100,000 in current take-home pay, you'd have to make $142,857.14 a year. Again, that's the top, what, nine or 8% of earners. And honestly, most people will never see $100,000 anyway. The average income is around 50,000, 60,000. And even then, right. you know, it's getting taxed. So your real take-home is like 35,000 at best. So no, 
I don't think there is a circumstance where people would realize that paying 10% on a hundred thousand would at all ever come into the reality. And that that 10% on a hundred thousand to 200,000 would only be $10,000 in taxes. That is significantly less than most people are paying now currently. So, so you, you, you still haven't answered the question and we really went way over on this, but I wanted, I'd like to have an answer. The people who have accumulated wealth. You're right. I'm sorry. Yes. Are you going to take it away from them? No. Um, I figure the, the, my reasoning for this is simple. A wealth tax would be taking a hot poker into the eye of the wealthy. This tax uh, reform is a message that we are shifting our economic focus and our economic policy and our economic theory to this. But what has happened in the past, right? It's not like a statute of limitations. They didn't commit any crimes. I mean, they, they might've committed some crimes. So uh, let, me, let me rephrase. If they've committed crimes and that's how they accumulated their wealth, they'll be prosecuted accordingly. But if they didn't and they just got rich because that's how they could get rich, you know, then no, at this point, no, I, I, unless it was ill-gotten gains or illicit activity or something along those lines, insider trading, what have you, no. And I think it's fair to leave those assets alone because that's the way they were accumulated at, up until that point. So on midnight 01 of the day that this tax got implemented, that's when that shift would occur. And I hope that is as clear as clear can be. Okay, we've been talking to... Uh... Mr. Ronan, who's a candidate for the Republican nomination for president, how do people follow you in your, your campaign? So the simplest way is to go to samronan.com. And the other way is to find me on social media with Sam, the number four, president 2024. We'll be right back with more with Sam after this message. Welcome back to The Truth Starts Now, and we're continuing our conversation with Sam Rogan about uh, his campaign for the Republican nomination for president. By the way, how's it going? It's actually going well, all things considered, right? Um, considering I am a working American, uh, considering I did enter late, um, we're getting a lot of traction in media, we're getting a lot of uh, traction on our social uh, media, and we're, we're getting a little bit of buzz, and that's what we were wanting. We were wanting, ideally, to win, of course, but our goals are to build a brand in the platform and to ensure that the American people are aware that there is someone who understands their plight running for office and someone who does have to deal with the consequences of the actions of Washington running for office to curb those consequences. So I, um, I'm curious about, uh, are, you are you going to be on any ballots? In so any, we any are- states? We are looking to see uh, which ballots we can get on at this time. There are some that are just out of our um, financial means currently, like Texas requires a $50,000 down payment. We don't have that yet. We do encourage people to donate. We do encourage people to phone bank. We do encourage volunteers and this, that, and the other. But at this time, we do not have that kind of money to throw at those kinds of ballots. But there are several that are only a couple hundred bucks or a couple thousand dollars, which we are looking into and prioritizing our, our marketing and our, and our uh, well, basically our, our campaigning in those states. Um, okay. Let's, let's go on to, to item three, and that's border. Mm -hmm. I have been writing for 
about a year and a half that I felt that the number one issue in the in the presidential campaign was going to be the border. Mm -hmm. A lot of people thought I was crazy that it was probably going to be abortion or something else for Biden's age. And and I everybody's entitled to their opinion. Mm -hmm. But I felt at the time that the border crisis of of what it's doing to our cities, to healthcare, to education, to crime. I remember I was old enough to vote for Ronald Reagan on his first term. And I remember he his famous question. He asked, are you better off than you were four years ago? So very and good. and that was the great question. I was under Jimmy Carter. He weren't. But <laughs> but I think that the question, the 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 similar question needs to be asked of the American people. If you look at what's been going on, do you feel safer today than you did four years ago? No. And so the border, and and there's only one person, to quote Harry Truman, the buck stops here. There's only one person responsible for the, the it's no longer a mess, the, the threat to national security uh, at the southern border is uh, the direct responsibility of inaction by the president of the United States. And on that basis alone, he shouldn't be reelected as president. He wants 5,000, he wants the Senate to confirm a bill that allows up to 5,000 people to come in a day with not closing the border. Mm. And and he says if it's over 5,000, we'll clo immediately close the border. He doesn't say how you immediately close a 1700 mile border on, <laughs> on on a day's notice you know so anyway it's, it's a major problem we have in some cities primarily blue state northern cities mm -hmm. tremendous problems we've got people sleeping in airport hangars and and in airport lobbies we have people in new york that are they're taking children out of the public school buildings and converting them into shelters for the illegals and sending the children home to try and learn on a process that didn't work under the pandemic, distance learning. Mm -hmm. And as the more and more situations, more and more people dying from, from fentanyl coming across the borders. Uh, over a million guns have been uh, imported over the border since Biden's been president. How do you fix it? <laughs> or do you do you fix it? No, how do you fix it? You elect me to president, all right? Let me be very clear on this issue. As president, I will fix it. Uh, so grandstanding aside, it is a crisis, right? And it, it is a huge issue, and maybe one segment is enough time to cover it. I'm going to do my best. So you bring up a lot of very important issues. There's the weapons trafficking, there's the drug trafficking, and then there's the redistribution of public assets from their intended purpose to being shelters, uh, effectively. And then you have a president who I also, uh, for myriad reasons, do not believe should even be eligible for re-election and should probably be removed from office. That being said, a 1,700-mile border is not something that you can treat lightly. Um, e even the Great Wall of China, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They still had to man that sucker, and it and it's comprises of, you know, probably a, a similar distance. The point being is the manpower issues, the resources in general, and then where are you going to place, defer, or deport 
illegals that are crossing the border and causing mischief and mayhem, right? The, these are all things that have to be considered. There, there is so much logistics taking place. So I'm going to address the border first and then work my way down, okay? The border itself is a humanitarian crisis, right? And I'm going to say that word and I'm going to define that word and then I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Humanitarian crisis to me is when people are fleeing their homes, their countries, their states, because their ability to live there is beyond livable. And so they are fleeing north to what they thought or feel or have been told is a refuge. And so now you have these men, women, and children, the elderly, the infirm, the sick and the destitute, piled up on our border in these unsafe, unsanitary living conditions, and they are growing in desperation by the day. That is a humanitarian crisis. However, treating it as a military or civil crisis disregards the, the real human uh, nature of that situation. So rather than wasting our resources with military and border patrol and just rounding them up and shipping them back over to round them up and ship them back over again, I do, in fact, propose a humanitarian solution. Most of these people are just people. Most of these people are not criminals. So what's the definition of an illegal immigrant? Someone who crosses the border illegally. There is no documentation. There is no reference. There is no track uh, traceability. There is no accountability. They, they are from, we have no idea that they're even here, right? Isn't, isn't that the primary definition is we don't even know that they are here or what they're doing or what they're about. So what are they doing illegally in America? Well, they're, they are working. They are doing things for our country. They are in the workforce, but they are not paying taxes. They are not on the W-2. They are not uh, supporting society in any way. In conjunction, they are also not receiving money or funds or anything like that because to the federal government, they don't exist. To the state government, that's, they don't that, exist. That's not, that's not true. That is they're, true. There is they're, no getting, they're getting benefits from the government in terms of payments, housing, food, transportation, education, all cost money that the federal government is paying. Number two, number two, which is, I think is very important. While I understand that a country may not be treating its, its citizens well, doesn't mean that we have to take them in and give them sanctuary. It isn't, it, 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 we have a process in place for legal immigration. Those people who are coming up through Mexico, by the way, when they cross the border from, from Central and South America into Mexico, they have papers. But when they get to the border, they're instructed by the NGOs to throw all the paper identification away and say they have none when they come into the United States because they can't prove citizenship, they can't do anything. My point is, yeah, it's it's important to to recognize and do whatever we can to try and help those economies that are willing to change to change. But that doesn't mean that they have a right under our constitution to walk across that border illegally and be entitled to benefits that are paid for by the citizens of the United States. Not guaranteed, Not there's no legal standing for that. 
we have a legal immigration policy and how people can come into this country legally. But what's happened under Biden, people are coming across illegally and are paying, not paying a price for it. In fact, we're paying a price for it by schools, medical facilities, the local government being overly taxed with the burden of almost 9 million people coming into this country in three years illegally. As, a, as the senator from Maine said, that a number of people that have come into this country illegally under the Biden administration is equal to the entire population of the New England states. Yeah, I, and let me be very clear here. Um, I'm, I, I took the time to um, pull up some references. So in the state of California, the employmentdevelopmentdepartment.gov website, benefits and resources for undocumented workers, there is a page for it. We provide benefits and resources for California workers. Disability insurance and paid family leave benefits provide partial pay. If you're an undocumented worker in California, you can apply, and this is only in California, and these are state benefits, even if you don't have a social security number. However, those do not protect your jobs. They do not provide any sort of thing like that. And it isn't um, SSI and it isn't Medicare. That is 100% ineligible to apply for unless you have a social security number. To the point, though, when anyone, undocumented or doc citizen documented, what have you, applies for SNAP benefits, they get that money and then they pay for food. For every dollar spent in SNAP benefit, or yes, every tax dollar spent on SNAP benefits, it generates $2 in the economy. I'm not saying that to say that what they're doing is okay. What I'm saying is to address this problem, we need to improve the access to legal immigration in the first place. And that's where I was going with the, the humanitarian crisis. We have so many roads that need rebuilt. We have so many bridges that need repaired. We have so many schools and universities that need built, libraries, hospitals. We have so much in this country where labor and manufacturing is needed, but we can't utilize this potential workforce because they are undocumented, they are illegal, and they are, because of this, being exploited by certain institutions and certain elements of our society to take advantage of that and then mistreat them and take away their, their human rights in the process. So instead of allowing all of that chaos to happen, and instead of paying for concentration camps uh, at our border, uh, so when I say concentration camps, I'm talking about tent cities, which have been shown uh, since their inception that they have very low sanitary and healthcare and housing and all of this. It's just, it's a terrible thing. And the government is spending money on that, on these terrible, terrible places to live when they could instead literally offer the same amount of money or actually significantly less sum of money to simply house them in hotels that uh, are, need occupancy. And even then, we can put the uh, immigrants into a work to citizenship program, right? Here's the thing. We can create jobs in this country. The, that's, that's literally what we did in the Great Depression. Uh, the president <laughs> ordered holes to be dug and uh, hired people to dig them and then hired other people to fill them, right? That's, that was, that's our history. So you mean to tell me that the federal government can't implement, and this goes into the AmeriWorks program, um, that we can't implement a job program in this country where training resources and uh, putting people into those positions 
and facilitating the movement of those people to those positions or filling the positions that are for those jobs in a local area. You mean to tell me we can't do that in a country? I, I completely disagree. And so addressing this concern, 10% of those job allocations could go to immigrants. And the rest of the 90% of the jobs that are being either created, trained for, or filled, you know, being trained to fill, mostly in the trades, because the trades um, are desperate to fill positions and get new people to join them, um, only 10% would go to these immigrants for this, you know, uh, work to citizenship, work to visa program. That way, these people are then putting their skills to use. They are documented, they are here legally, and they're contributing to society. Now, currently, under our tax system, anybody who makes any amount of money pays taxes. So guess what? Now they're contributing to taxes. Now, if they get SNAP benefits, they're actually paying back into them. Now, if they get housing benefits, they're paying back into them. The problem is currently they can apply to these things like we just saw in California, but they're not actually actively contributing to it. They're just benefiting from it. And the dollars, although spent by tax dollars, do get put back into society and benefit society, they fundamentally are not contributing to it. And that is a huge um, optics problem. So we can resolve the optics problem by providing and allocating and encouraging job creation for these immigrants, which can of course be oversought, which can of course have regulation and you know, strict requirements, the whole nine yards, right? We can do that just like we did for the military. If you're an immigrant, you can join the United States military for four years and get your citizenship. But that too was betrayed by the federal government. And that program is, it may be back into effect, but it was rescinded. In addition to this immigration crisis, we can restore these different programs where there was a pipeline from being an immigrant, being a foreigner, to becoming a U.S. citizen. As long as that pipeline exists, and as long as it is being met accordingly, you resolve this crisis without having to put people in concentration camps, without having to waste all that time, money, energy, and resources on deportation. And then you can truly focus on the criminal elements and protecting our border without having to worry about the families and the regular people who are just trying to survive. By reducing the, the survival desperation and eliminating it, you can now focus on the actual criminal and protection aspect with the border patrol, and you can prevent fentanyl, you can prevent uh, weapons uh, laundering and proliferation. And what's more, it's the Mexican and other uh, middle, um, Latin American and South American countries that are not engaging in enough activity to prevent these things from happening in the first place. So we can do more foreign, you know, working together with our neighbors, or we can, do, if that doesn't work, we can sanction them. We can literally hurt them in their own economy and be like, listen, if you want to trade with America, then take care of your country and stop allowing this crap to happen. Right. I so, think uh, we, 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 we need to move on here, but just one final point. I think that, that the American people, mm -hmm see nothing really positive of allowing 10 million people to come in and live off the public trough and take money and benefits away from Americans who work hard, pay their taxes. And, and I think it's, I still believe this will be a major, major issue in the coming presidential campaign. With that, real quick, how do people follow you? Yeah, uh, so samronan.com and on, on social media, you can find me at Sam, the number four, 
president 2024. And I do want to quickly say, I agree with you that the border is a major issue and it needs to be discussed more often. Right. We'll be right back with our last segment. Welcome back to The Truth Starts Now. And we're speaking with Sam Ronan in our last segment here. And we're going to talk about this fourth plank in his platform, America Works. We had uh, stronger than anticipated jobs numbers this morning from the Department of Labor. Yet we still have, last number I saw was something like almost 7 million jobs. We're not getting illegals who are coming across the border to take the jobs because since they can't speak the language, it makes it very difficult for them to assimilate into a workforce, especially skilled labor, which are usually much smaller groups of people. Mm -hmm. So talk about your America Works program. So I agree with the, the problem that we're facing. We have 7 million job vacancies. We see in the news every single day that there's record layoffs occurring in just about every single industry and sector. And in terms of skilled labor, right, our uh, trades especially, it's it's in crisis. It's in shambles. The average age of most tradesmen is 45 nowadays. And that is a problem because that means not enough youth are entering into the trades to, to pass the torch to them, right? And so the America Works program is to address two issues. The first issue is that America has not had a great works program since the moon landing. Uh, we have not truly invested in something great to build something, to create something in this country since the moon landing. Since the moon landing, we've been in many wars. We have been uh, leading in different innovations. Uh, our various sectors have done great things. But as a country, right, we have essentially stagnated. So the first thing America Works does is address this issue. America, un under my leadership, will start engaging in a high-speed rail system. And it will also create a national uh, fiber optic system and a national clean energy grid while updating the national or the energy grids that currently exist and modernizing our water pipelines and so on and so forth. Basically, a modernization of our country's infrastructure. That is going to take tens of millions of people working to get that done, but we're already at a 7 million deficit. So out of that statement, what does America Works do to address this uh, deficit and while generating even more? We discussed the, the border crisis and there are definitely bad actors and we definitely need to address it. But for those who are willing and able to work and assimilate, we can allocate 10% of this vast program to them. With 7 million jobs, that would be 700,000 immigrants, which would have a foot in the door legally, ethically, and morally to participate in America. The remaining 6,300,000 would go to American citizens. And as we are building these great works, this high-speed rail system and so forth, it will be American-built. It won't be Chinese. It won't be uh, Vietnamese. It won't be European. It'll be American industry, American innovation, and American grants going out to these innovators and to these companies. Just like during the Great Depression when the president ordered holes to be dug and then holes to be filled and hired people to do so, right? We have that ability as the wealthiest, most powerful nation on earth. The other thing is when we see these jobs programs, these new uh, jobs reports, right? Is it new jobs created and one person filling them? Or is the, are these jobs created and 
a person who's already employed taking them so that they can cover their cost of living, right? When we talk about jobs in America and the 155 million uh, employed uh, members of society, we are talking about low income and also skilled uh, wage um, positions. And with the low skilled, low wage uh, positions, people are usually holding two, three, or even four, sometimes even five of those positions at a time. How many of those jobs are full-time? How many of those jobs pay 20, 25, $30 an hour, right? Those are the statistics that really matter. Now, with this America Works program, there will be training facilities. There'll be training centers. There will be uh, essentially like the ASFAB where you get your, you, you take it and you find out where you qualify. Hey, you have a really strong um, background in mechanics. You have a really strong background in electronics or administration or general knowledge capabilities, whatever the case may be, then you get placed, hey, these are the jobs that you're most qualified for, and these are the jobs that are in your area, but these are the jobs across the country that we will help facilitate your move to. This will solve so many problems at once. One, people will actually be able to afford the cost of living. Two, they will get skills and trade and training to be professionally qualified, which will make them eligible for higher skilled jobs in the first place which will then dramatically reduce poverty, which will then dramatically improve the ability to spend and overall prosperity. So the goal is put Americans to work who want to work or are desperately looking for work and give them meaningful work to do. So that allows them to get into that career growth and that opportunity. I believe I also integrated an incentive program for employers. Employers can sign up to be a part of the process so to help facilitate the training, the placement, and the so on and the so forth. I mean, how many jobs offer relocation assistance programs? Mine did, thankfully. <laughs> so there's plenty of jobs out there that are, in fact, looking for professionals and people who are willing to learn the skills in the trade. Some more than others. Uh, some are very niche. Some are very broad. And some are, you know, very uh, physically demanding. But the point is, Americans can come together can work towards a better and brighter future for not just themselves, but for each other. And this America Works program facilitates this social contract, this actual national pride of being able to work together to accomplish something. If you look at your four programs that we've, we've talked about this morning, mm -hmm. what's it going to cost and where are you going to get it? National uh, police standardization shouldn't cost anything. That's literally paperwork that's bureaucracy at best that's that's literally writing a training program uh and you could probably allocate a department to do to handle that for however long it takes and then to distribute it so that shouldn't cost anything the border uh crisis should actually cost less because we're paying 700 a day for these tent cities and we're paying for the cost of deportation we're uh, paying for the cost of all this overtime and all this other stuff whereas if we integrate the humanitarian crisis into the America Works program, we'd actually be generating revenue and resources. Taxation, of course, would generate resources because there are no uh, loopholes. <laughs> uh, you can't just hide your money in the Cayman Islands. So that should uh, generate, um, I believe, an additional uh, $1 to $2 trillion per year. And then as far as the America Works program, that is also a net uh, revenue generating program. Uh, there's other policies that would help facilitate federal revenue too, such as a federal uh, legalization of marijuana and cannabis to be used in industry. Many states are beginning to adopt it anyway, so let's just pull the pull the lever 
and address it as a country and bring back America's number one cash crop. There's other things that can facilitate um, federal budget growth and revenue is um, standardizing the cost of care, like medical care uh, in the country uh, and regulating that instead of allowing um, hospitals to charge multipliers of the base cost and charging whatever base cost they want in the first place, we can standardize the cost of care so that if you go to California, Texas, Ohio, BFE, Florida, you are going to get the same cost of care at the same level of facility and the same quality uh, across the country. Uh, and that'll dramatically reduce uh, Medicare costs and healthcare costs for individuals as well. So all of these policies are intended to make, as crazy as this is gonna say to hear, <laughs> Uh, to make the government shockingly efficient. Um, the government can be efficient if you get rid of all of the fluff and all of the pork. If you just standardize things and hold people accountable, it's crazy what you can do when it, it just comes down to balancing a checkbook. Do you think that you can do, if, if, if I hear you saying, you're saying that you can accomplish all the things that you want to accomplish without other than increasing taxes on income for people who make more than a billion dollars to mm. 97%, you're not going to have to raise taxes on people in order to pay for these programs. No. For every dollar spent on the national highway system, it generates $6. So one can only imagine spending a dollar on fiber optic internet and uh, high-speed rail and uh, clean energy grids and improving our grids and water systems you can only imagine that the dollar spent there is going to generate uh, tens or twenties, even hundreds of dollars in return. It's what China did. Uh, and I'm not praising China, but what the Chinese government did 30 years ago was invest in their infrastructure and they were a struggling economy 30 years ago. And now they are competing with the European Union and ourselves. So the point I am trying to make here is investing in America is always going to improve America's prosperity. And you're right, uh, that would be a concern, spending money. This, this all sounds extremely expensive, but when you think about where the other revenues are being missed or lost or misappropriated uh, and correcting those issues, you, you start seeing that we could theoretically have universal health care now. Uh, Medicare pays every single hospital, every single clinic a certain amount of money. And then the clinic charges a multiplier on top of that money to turn profit. Um, if you get rid of all that fluff, if you get rid of all the, the insurance middlemen and all of the bloated administrations at these hospitals, we fundamentally would be able to pay for healthcare for every single citizen in America outright with our current Medicare budget. But we, have about two, we, have, we have about two and a half minutes left. Okay. Uh, two, two, two issues. Uh, for the two people in Guatemala. Okay. One has filed legally to get a, to get admittance to the United States, and he's paid his five or ten thousand dollars, and he's been waiting five or six years. Jeez. And his neighbor gets up and goes to the border and walks across and gets in. And the other guy's still waiting, and he's still waiting. So, in the sense of fairness, aren't we favoring the illegal more so than the person who's waiting in line to come in legally? Correct. Uh, the current process is extremely convoluted and it does favor the illegal immigrant without repercussion, as opposed to the person who is, in fact, trying to do things legally and lawfully. 
which is why my uh, border crisis solution is to streamline those processes and address those concerns directly. Would you shut down the border? I've actually considered um, isolationist um, policy, uh, more so for foreign policy, but for this border crisis, would I consider it? It would depend on how effective my border crisis solution would be. If it wasn't as effective as I had hoped, then there would be an option. That That is certainly on the table. What about China, Iran, and Russia? What specifically? Well, they're not our friends. <laughs> so do I see them becoming a, a, a greater threat over the course of time? Uh, Russia, no, uh, largely because Ukraine has already basically stopped the scary Russian um, military with farmers and outdated weapon systems. Uh, Iran is a threat so far as if it ever achieves nuclear weapons, it might actually use them. And then China, I don't think is as much of a threat as people uh, think. They are certainly aggressive and they're certainly trying to be expansionist now that they have established their economy. But I don't think China is in the business of waging war. I think they're in the business of appropriating economic territory. And they have been doing that since the country has been in existence. They's, they've always indebted that region to themselves and used that power and influence to generate more beneficial uh, states for themselves. So I think with China, the best bet, instead of a, a military conflict uh, or even engaging in trade war is to truly outmaneuver them. And that can be done, especially if we can rebuild and modernize our own infrastructure. And what about uh, their interest in Taiwan? Do you think they'll attack Taiwan? So truthfully, I do think they would attack Taiwan. Um, and that's because Russia attacked Ukraine. Uh, I think it set the precedent that, well, uh, America is not going to get militarily involved there, so they probably won't get militarily involved in Taiwan. The question, though, becomes how many more of these incidents have to happen before we start uh, ushering in World War III? Um, I don't, again, I don't believe China will do something that'll trigger World War III, but if they felt they could get away with invading Taiwan the same way Russia invaded Ukraine, I think they would. Okay, we're out of time. Uh, thank sure. you for sending, uh, spending the time with us. It's been informative. And uh, tell the people one more time how they can follow your campaign. Absolutely. So, Dan, before I get into that, thank you once again. It's been a pleasure. Uh, for everybody that's been listening and watching, uh, you can find me at samronin.com. You can find me on social media at Sam, the number four, President 2024. And I look forward to working with you guys, hearing from you. Please reach out, ask questions, volunteer, and donate. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to this special report from The Truth Starts Now with presidential candidate Sam Roden. Thank you for joining us today, and we'd like to hear your comments or questions. So go to bwradionetwork.com, that's bwradionetwork.com, and give us your questions or comments. And thanks for joining us today.